you know what's happening here in the book of Revelation, that this is a unique uh, place in the scriptures, that here at the beginning of this uh, magnificent book, as the things that the things that uh, have been, the things that are, the things that will be laid out for us in this book. And here are seven churches that were well positioned in Asia Minor, in western Turkey. They were positioned in places of ministry and influence and impact for, the, for Christ's sake, but it was not an easy place to live. It, these cities were not easy places for these churches to exist. Well, you say, is that true, any? Well, you know, as we're coming increasingly into an era where the culture is uh, overtly hostile to Christianity, biblical Christianity, that we begin to get a little feel for what it would be like to be under the gun, to be in the crosshairs where the government is against you. Our government is against Christianity, and it's increasing. So let's appreciate that as we go through these accounts. And here is Jesus Christ in the midst of these seven churches, the lampstands. There he is. And he's giving, giving an uh, a diagnostic evaluation. Uh, it sounds like you're looking at a car, uh, uh, a physical. <laughs> uh, he's examining these churches. So keep that in mind. This is the third church. We'll talk more about it later. As to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. I've alerted you, haven't I, that the opening statements in these seven churches, the first, the header, it is a description of Christ that is especially suitable by design to the need of that church. So here is the sword, the Romphea. And there were two swords, the Makarios and the Romphea. And the Romphea, this is a spear-like sword. The Makarios was more like an exaggerated Jim Bowie knife, something you, you know, you could pull out and do quick damage. But this is the Romphea, this sword. And it's the point here is ultimate power belongs to Jesus Christ. And it's the word that comes from his mouth, the word that he speaks. He says this. I know where you are dwelling. Trying to bring out the present tense of this word, karoikeo. And there is a, you'll see, I'm looking in my notes, and I've drawn a line around that down to verse, the the latter part of the verse, you see where it says, where Satan dwells, karoikeo. So there is this uh, word relationship, but it represents a thought relationship. So I think what he's emphasizing here with this, it's a present tense, where, the, where you are dwelling, you are dwelling where Satan's throne is, and that they have an established, the permanent dwelling in the presence of Satan's forces. This is a good thing. They're right there in the teeth of the enemy, where they need to be. Where Satan's throne is. I will discuss this in more length as we go along, but... I know there are varying views of this. Um, I'll just get it to the chase, cut to the chase. I think what he's referring to here is the fact that Pergamos was a center for, uh, for emperor cult worship. And this was set in motion well before the time of Augustus when the emperor of Rome wanted to be seen as a god and encouraged it. And encouraged the response to him as God. It was a way of getting, getting a loyalty throughout the empire in the name of a religious exercise. And it was a, it, you were, your feet were held to the fire, literally, for not doing this obeyance and uh, honoring with a pinch of incense and just say, Caesar is Lord. And that was your ticket. You could go and worship at any shrine of your choice. But that was the passageway through which you had to go. I think he's referring to this, the center of the emperor cult is where what he's speaking. Uh, Beth and I visited this city and we had a little bit of ref, uh, preparation for that visit, of course, through the past years. 
we went to Pergamos. We went to all seven of these. This is one of the more impressive sites as to how it functioned and what's, and I'll, I'll give you some of that a little bit later. And um, it was a, we was up on, I remember this, it was positioned well up on a high hill. And uh, it was rather September, it was rather cold. You could get a great view out across the Aegean, only 12 miles away from the Aegean. You could see up the Dardanelles. And here's the church, Satan's throne, place where Satan had well positioned his, um, his, False religion in that area. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas. His name means, you see the auntie here, means against all. We don't know anything about Antipas. It's just not in the history, church history books. There is some legends that came that he was like boiled in oil. Uh, that sort of thing, but we don't, we don't know what happened. But he says this in the days of Antipas, my witness, the Lord says, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You know, the devil does love to use persecution as an intimidation to the church. And there, thankfully, most aren't killed for the name of Christ, but those that are, it's used by the evil one to get us to shut up to wherever the church may be, to undermine the loyalty of believers to Christ. It can be a very powerful psychological tool that Satan would use to try to diminish the effectiveness of a church. But this church, you got to like this. He says that he was killed. He was my faithful one. I have a few things against you because you have there some uh, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block. I'll just comment on a word or two here, and I intend to give you a- application in a moment. This is the word scandalone, a stumbling block. You see it, it's, uh, find it frequently in the New Testament and the Gospels and Epistles. Scandalone, it was a, it was a bait stick, essentially, a bait stick of a trap, and then when it was triggered, you'd hit it, then drop down or whatever noose up, and it would catch whatever you were trying to catch. And uh, we we had a version of this when I was a kid. There was I uh, had a friend uh, who he, he, we constructed together a, well, a little trap. And we had squirrels that were just all over the place in our backyard. So we thought that uh, we would uh, try our, our little trick trap and set the trap. And there was the stick down inside. And I got some of my mother's great brand muffins. And one of those stuck them right behind it. And so that stupid squirrel, he would go in. And he would go in and just hit that stick. And there was a string on it. And then the door would come down. We caught one more than once that way. And it's that effect. But the point here he's using is that to put a stumbling block is an entrapment. That is, it's a, what do we say, bait and switch? Bait and switch? That's what it is. And we'll get back to Balak in a moment. Before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols. This was a common practice in the ancient world, in in societies where they were uh, rife with idolatry. Because offering up the meats to the idols was a way of getting blessing and pleasing, keeping the gods pleased. And what it would do is it would bring the best meat forward to those occasions. This becomes the subject in, in 1 Corinthians in chapters 8 through 10. And what do you do? do you, can you go and can we go to the Ember's restaurant Friday night and eat? Well, that's right next to the temple. That's where all this meat's offered up to idols is this thing to do. And it caused quite a rift in churches over what to do about that. And so it's a problem to eat sacrifice to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus, you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of Nicola, the Nicolaitans. Now, who are in the world of the Nicolaitans? We know a lot more about Balaam and Balak than we do about the Nicolaitans. That 
Probably they were, but we would call, we use the word syncretist. They were syncretist. That is, they worked, they were enemies of the truth, but they were shrewd in the ways in which they could marry truth statements to error and mix them together. So it was a deadly poison and that it was an antinomian group that is against the law of God. And they would snooker people into a line of thought, into a belief system, because it had enough of the truth in it to make it palatable, interesting. That's the way syncretism worked. What does he say to do to this church? What is this church to do in response? Repent. Metanoeo. Well, they had some work to do because they had been tolerant of this subset or this group in the church. And so there was to be as metanoia. Meto means after noeo, to think. And it literally meant an afterthought. And I think it's safe to say usually afterthoughts mean a change in plans. (laughs) And so a change of mind and a new direction is set. And with the resultant behavior that flows out of it. And so repent. I think he's addressing this to the entire congregation. And repent, therefore. There's a little extra urgency this. For those in the, the languages, this is an aorist imperative. Repent. Get hold of this. Get your, get your thinking turned around. You've got to do a 180 on this. You're looking the other way. You ought not to be doing that. Or else I'm coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There it is. You remember how we started the reading of this. The word. You know, the interesting thing about the scriptures, the word of God, it's either a comfort and a strength to us or it just shreds us. There's no neutrality with scripture. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now, here is one of those comfort closures in these, as you find through these uh, uh, letters to these churches. To him who overcomes, nikao, nike, nike. This is a, a goddess of victory. Um, today we celebrate it with the swish, Nike. You wear Nike shoes? You can buy anything from Nike, pay a higher price. But uh, he who overcomes... Victorious over to him, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'm going to reserve comment to this into the end because this this is fascinating. I love this hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. All right, let's let's take it and let's let's move through it. You know about the frog in the kettle, don't you? You've heard this. We've, I'm sure, between Justin and me, we probably have mentioned it a few times along the way. That you place a frog in a kettle of water at room temperature. You turn up the heat gradually, and the frog gets cooked. And you have some nice, tender frog legs. Ever eaten frog legs? I don't know that I have. Somebody, I'm told that it's a little bit like chicken. Is, is that what it is? You, you're, you're verifying? Okay. That's, that's a throwaway. All right. So this kind of thing can happen to a church. It can gradually get used to standards and values of the culture in which it exists and then cease to be countercultural. So through compromise over a period of time, compromise is where you, you, there are these differences that you have. And so you see each side loosens up and grants a little bit, uh, cuts some slack. In this case, the church would. And so compromise. And you saw the church then loses its effectiveness for Christ and signs on to being judged by Christ. Now, this happened to Israel. This happened to Israel. This is a big story in the Old Testament. It's huge. <laughs> it, Israel was given ample warning before she took the promised land. And God in no uncertain terms spoke through Moses. You should read the book of Deuteronomy. That 
in the shadows of all these alien cultures, bad neighborhood. Boy, Israel's always been in a rough neighborhood (laughs) from the very beginning. That in that neighborhood of nations, the Canaanites, and then even those further out on the perimeter, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, that there were dangers in being in that locality. And the idol worship of Israel's pagan neighbors was a powerful force, seductively powerful. And Israel succumbed to the siren song of these, this Canaanite world and life view, and they paid a heavy price. I'm not here tonight to tell you why it was so powerful. I will leave it to your imagination as to why it was. And if you're in any doubts, I'll be glad to. I've read on this. This is uh, because I so why did Israel just get seduced so easily? Just God would tell them all the if you do this, if you obey me, things are really going to be good. I'm going to bless you. It's going to rain. You're going to have crops. Children will be born. You're going to be healthy. Your infant mortality rate will be well down. You're going to have sons and daughters. Yada, yada, on and on. God's all these wonderful things. But if you do this, I'm going to kick you in the rear. And not only that, if you don't listen, I'm going to kick you harder the second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time. And I'm going to finally take you out. And I'm going to turn you over to these idol-worshipping nations that you saw were, thought were so glamorous and wonderful. And you enjoyed it all. And I'm just going to turn you over to their culture. And you're going to live in it. And what did Israel do? They just went right over to those idolatrous cultures. Went hook, line, and sinker. And you sit and think, is that not stupid? What did I say this morning? Stupid is not intellectual IQ. Stupid is spiritual IQ. And the wayward heart. Israel fell. She was succumbed. Now let me go to this third factor. Namely, the compromise in the Christian life will eventually bring a halt to effectiveness for Christ. Oh, it can happen to us. It can happen to a church like Israel. The church. We live in a dangerous neighborhood. Oh, we do. Our culture is not value-free. And if you determine to listen to it in order to determine the way you think and live, there's going to be a price to pay. If we as a church determine to live uh, to, to uh, well, what's the culture saying? Oh, I'm reading an article right now on this gender dysphoria. And it's in a, a Christian magazine. And it's written by a psychologist at a certain Christian school. And um, I am I get through reading it and I think, boy, this is tricky business here. So if someone comes into your assembly with gender dysphoria, you know, that's you're biologically male, but you think you're female, you know how this is. And the way in which it the Christians are being enjoined to deal with this. I'm thinking, is there any scripture that could be brought up in dealing with this? And, okay, I can't get on that, but I'm, I, I just I see how it works. And Christians, I usually can get seduced into acceptance and approval. Well, okay, that's, so here it is. So the Apostle John, you know what John calls this system? of which wants to seduce us away from the Lord, calls it the world, the cosmos. Now let's turn to the church of Pergamum quickly. Got to be careful here because I really enjoyed our little trip in time in Pergamum. Let's listen to the risen Christ evaluation of this assembly, this house church or probably house churches in this city. The word Pergamum means citadel, and it was certainly that. It's situated on a high hill, a hill about 15 miles off uh, from the Aegean, and it was 60 miles northeast of Smyrna. Do I, do I have a map of that? Um, I did. Oh, there it is. I talked right by it. Good map. Uh, okay, yeah, okay. Well, I don't need to point. You can read. And it was a wealthy city. It was very wicked. It's a city where the worshipers of Athena, Dionysius, Zeus, Asclepius. It was called the lures of the ancient world. It was the ancient capital of the province of Asia. It was a place where parchment was first used. It was famous for its library, 200,000 volumes. Mark Anthony, was that Richard Burton in the movie? Um, he promised Elizabeth Taylor, no, Cleopatra, 
he promised her the library from this place. It was just a treasure load of knowledge, information. But it was especially, it was especially noted, uh, for, I'm having to leave out some things, but let me go with the one that Beth really helped me on here. Oh, I love to travel with Beth. She's a wonderful travel companion. She takes notes like she's doing right now. And beautiful handwriting. And uh, she took these notes. I had forgotten everything that, you know, when you go to these places and these tour guides, they tell you, they just, you just get uh, overloaded with all in running away, running away. And I don't didn't take the notes, but thank you, Beth. Here's what she wrote down. And I, in this city of Pergamos, there was a hospital that was founded on this place. This was a real big medical center. And it was founded in the 4th century B.C. And they used a water therapy system. And here's how it worked. You would go to this place and there would be hot and cold water. The sick would be, hot and cold water would be used. The sick would be blindfolded. They would be um, given certain potions, little joy juice, whatever, kickapoo joy juice, whatever the, it was. And they were escorted through these tunnels. And dirt would be dropped down on top of them. The priest would talk down through these pipes as these people were walking through this tunnel. And they would say stuff. And so you're blindfolded. You're just saying, what's going on here? Is this, what kind of gig is this? Well, you can see it's like these, so off these uh, places that are going to heal you. There's a lot of little psychology going on the priest talked through the pipe and they would say to them you feel better you feel better you're getting well and then the next day they would take them to pools and they would re uh and they would uh, uh they would read to keep their mind off their illness i mean i don't know stories whatever so get your mind off your illness and then the next day there would be a, there was a, a dream room into which you would go. And you were, uh, you would tell the dreams to these priests, your dreams, and then they would interpret these dreams for you, always in a very positive light, like, you're a wonderful person, you're going to be great, I see great things for you in your future. And all this to keep up morale. That's what they did. So you say, well, I know I know places and books and things. Just go to the self-help section. You'll find modern versions of this. All right, that's that's that. That was that was the city. That was the city in which this church existed. Now let's walk through what the Lord lays out for this church. One, the Lord of the church possesses absolute authority over His church. That's settled right at the get-go. And Jesus Christ exercises authority by means of the sword of His word uses that language. You know, the, the, the sword, this, we know this from Romans in chapter 13, where it says they bear not the sword in vain, speaking of government, because the proconsul, local governments, the authority in the proconsul, he was granted the right of the sword, skaius gladi, which was the power to execute at will. Jesus Christ is associated with the sword because he exercises judicial authority. This, I mean, this registered with them. This was not vague. And this sword, as the word proceeding from the mouth of Christ, it would bear, it would lay bare the evil that's assaulting the church. What I say? It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing either the dividing sun or soul and spirit, joints in the marrow. It's a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the punishing power of Christ's word in the defeat of his enemies is communicated by this sharp sword. So here's Jesus with his word. All right, I'm going to have to skip along so we don't run out of time. So let me go, let me go to verse 13, point something out here. The Lord of the church places a high premium on loyalty to him. Oh, he does. This is rooted in Old Testament truth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Satan is a bitter adversary of Christ's church. The church at Pergamos existed in a tough town. It was not an easy place to have an ongoing, strong, clear, bold, witness, countercultural presence. 
False religion was well established in the city. It was everywhere, saturated with it. It was a very bad neighborhood morally and religiously. All right, here's the church. Satan's authority and power was exercised over his spiritually blind worshipers. You know, we do live in a colony for the blind. Did you know that? I'm not trying to tell us that we're all wonderful people. But I will tell you this. Those who are without Christ are spiritually blind. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And religious systems come in and layer upon a condition that already exists. They were already spiritually blind. And false religion comes in and exacerbates the problem. We live in a colony for the blind. So we should be mindful of that. Part of our witness. So Satan is worshipped. He can be worshipped either openly or in effect in all idolatry. First Corinthians 10 in verse 20. So I think his throne here is then this emperor worship that was prominent in Pergamos. But Jesus Christ is pleased when his church takes its stand and on its, its ground against the forces of evil. Stand strong. Be perceptive. That sword that comes, the word of Christ, and that will give you the mindset, the sharp, discerning thought processes, decision-making capability that is necessary. Let me put it to you this way. How do we remain true to Christ's name and resist modern forms of emperor worship? Do we have it today? Just a little pinch of incense. Caesar's Lord. Uh, I don't have to... Do I have to convince you how this is really coming on strong now? If you'll just say the right things, buy into the culture, talk the right words. Hey, love is everything. That's all you need to say. Well, let me go through some things. So whether it's, <clears throat> it can be, certainly would have to be the placing of the state in, in, above obedience to Christ, obviously, is, is a grievous error. Loyalty to a politician or law above Christ is compromised. Laws, you know, we have laws that exist that don't command us to violate God's law, but they allow us to violate God's law. But blind loyalty to a political party can lead Christians into compromise. I, I, I want to run something by you quickly, I, just to show you what I mean, to show you. I want to give you just a brief profile. I'm going to go lickety-split. What can a church do today that, what could a church do today that would begin, that would show that it's absorbing the culture, taking it in, making adjustments, lowering the standards, and compromising and disobeying Christ? Or, to use John's language, what is a worldly church? What is it? Now, I know why a worldly church way it was described in 1958, but not to be confused with that. <laughs> worldly church. It is one in which it has absorbed the opinions, the values, and the aspirations, and the norms and standards of this present world system. It's any philosophy or way of thinking untouched by the Word of God. Secondly, a worldly church is one which has adjusted its view of the Bible to accommodate the critics of the Bible. The world says, may say, that the Bible is a good book. Uh, maybe. At best. But subject to errors like any other literature. The world says the Bible couldn't be true. Because it, it, it's authority. We don't do authority here. I was talking to one of my grandsons yesterday, and he's thinking about college. And and I told Connor, and I said, Connor, I need to talk to you. We, I said, we need to have a series of meetings before you, wherever you settle on going, it's dangerous out there. And going to a Christian school, one of the schools he's interested in is a denominational school. And I said, it's dangerous. And one of the first things that you've got to know is what, where, What's the stand on the authority of Scripture? Uh, that, that's an index question. So we, we'll need to talk. Okay. 
A worldly church is one which has accepted sexual sins as a merely as merely an alternate lifestyle. Mm. Without any rebuke or challenge. The world says same-sex marriage is acceptable. So churches are buying into it. I am alarmed at the silence. You can hear the crickets. Churches that aren't speaking. I'm not talking about rants and weird behavior. I'm just saying helping people to think through these things scripturally. Scary. A worldly church is one which has made concessions to organic evolution and geologic uniformitarianism at the expense of a consistent and normal interpretation of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All over the place. I mean, the churches, Christian schools. You you may be just overwhelmed with the fact that there are just a handful of Christian schools who are really committed to the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve, real man, real woman, no evolution. God created them, et cetera, et cetera, while in a universal flood. You would have to look a long time to find a place, a school, and in many cases, churches that are ready to give that place. Oh, that's a worldly church. A worldly church accepts the world's way of finding solutions to life's problems. Marriage, guilt, love yourself. What, on and on. All right, my list is longer. I've got to stop. Let's come back to the text and let's, uh, let's go, let's go forward. Thirdly, did I get there? Did I get there? All right, yes. Number three, the Lord of the church rebukes the church that refuses to deal with the deceptive devices of Satan. All right, here's where is where the Lord gets a finger in their face. You got a problem. Wow, that would have, wonder what the first church, wonder what that first congregation thought when they came to that point. Jesus has got a problem with us. That's serious. One thing for a pastor to say it, but Jesus himself? (laughs) The Balaamites. Who were the Balaamites? You remember Balaam? What a story. (laughs) It is. It's Balaam. He was a prophet who was asked by Balak, king of the Moabites, to curse Israel. He wanted to put a hex on them. In Jude 11, it referred to as the era of Balaam. He thought a holy God would curse Israel. There's the way of Balaam in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. Covetousness. That is, I'll put a curse on them and I'll do dirty work if you just give me enough money. A little bribery. A little payoff. He sold his religious services for money. He was willing to compromise for a price. That's Balaam. The teaching of Balaam here in Revelation 2.14. This is the theology of accommodation. It's another word for this is, what did I say earlier? Syncretism. So the teaching of Balaam was the teaching. He was a money-mad seer, a false prophet, who was seeking to seduce and solicit Israel to abandon her separated pilgrimage from this worldly conformity. She was, Israel was marching through some really, really dangerous places. And the spirit of Balaam, you remember just, just to look over the shoulder what Balaam did. He couldn't, he, he went up on this mountain and he was, Balak paid him a handsome sum to curse. And he said, I can't get a curse out of my mouth. Only blessing comes out. I want to say, and it's blessing. God just, Rule over his vocal cords and his the the synapse and his brain just wouldn't go where he wanted to go, and but you know what Balaam finally did? We know this from subsequent reading in the text that he 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 got the women the Moabite women and their religious system. I must be careful in a mixed audience, so I'll just put it this way: it was a it was a magnificent, seductive, joyous. Drinking sex party. And the women came in and began to dance through the, before the men. And it didn't take long for the men to get all. It was, a, it was a disaster. Well, 
What happens? We got the spirit of Balaam in this church in Pergamum. Not good. And in order for the culture, you can see it was accommodation to the culture, which was they worshiped, the, the, there were similarities. And these, this religious system, which was a fertility-based religious system in, in Pergamus, like in ancient times, even before Pergamus. And so <clears throat> here were those in the church finding some way to accommodate so we can have people can go to our church and can participate in this pagan worship, orgies, sex without guilt in the name of worshiping the gods and all that goes with it, and we can have it all here. You couldn't find a parking lot, a spot that would have been empty. This is a church that accommodated. People would have enjoyed it. Then we have the Nicolaitans. I only will say this about this church. Let me just say two things. Time's getting away. The church, the church must beware. I'll just say this about the Nicolaitans. I commented on it a little earlier. These, they misrepresented Christian liberty. And they advocated a freedom to participate in heathen feasts and free love. They found ways to create loopholes, loopholes. You know, give just... Give give um, certain kinds of personalities and who are infected with the cultures, the norm, cultural norms, and the personality and the ability to communicate and mixing the two together, and you can just be swept right away. Not hardly realize it. That's what happened through the Nicolaitans. So the church must beware of Satan's devices of presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Remember that, Justin? <laughs> Justin and I, we, it's been a few years back, we did that book on um, precious remedies against Satan's devices. Some of you here remember that by Thomas Brooks. And he had all these devices that Satan used. This was one of them. Of presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Oh, this is a long and age-old tactic of Satan. It keeps working. It's the Garden of Eden's first example of this tactic, Genesis 3, 4, and 5. As God said, you, you, you'll be all right. And adversity has slain her thousands, but prosperity her ten thousands. And so here's the promise of pleasure. Seeking happiness. Um, what's the bait? What's the bait? Want happiness. Everybody wants happiness. Americans, everybody wants happiness in America. So what do we do? Pleasure, self-fulfilling. Um, uh, just stand at the check. I was looking at the checkout line. These, those are depressing places. You know, I was at, we were at Publix and you, we were behind this lady and she had coupons and it was taking forever. So I'm st- standing here looking at the magazines, you know, National Enquirer down here and uh, who knows what else. It's messy out there. <laughs> it's ugly. <laughs> Talk about stupid. And this kind of thing. And so, what is Satan? Oh, he just brings in romance and couples who multiple arranged marriages and going from one to the other, but it's beautiful. And come and read how Chad and can't remember what the girl's name was, but it's the latest in some country music singers' uh, saga of of serial marriages, and and then the the promise of excitement and drugs. And here is what's the basketball player out in a place he shouldn't be seeking a some kind of a drug induced high. And let me tell you, our young people, it's it's bad out there, folks. And I, I have spies. It's bad out there. We older folks, we gray hairs, we think, what's all this about? The worst you could do in 1958 was drink a Coke and take aspirin. Um, and things are well beyond that, well beyond that. And I'm telling you, things are, they're, they're drawing the kids. They're giving them cocaine. It's been around for a while, but it keeps coming back. And ecstasy and all these pleasure-enhancing things, escape and hallucinogenic drugs and Satan has ways of getting, Christian kids can get enmeshed in that stuff. All right, enough of that. The church must beware of Satan's device of painting sin with virtue's colors. I'll use another one of Thomas Brooks' words here. 
This is through rationalization and euphemisms that make sin, that give sin makeovers. You, you understand what I mean? Using rationalization and euphemisms, sin is made over. It's made to look like, hey, that looks good. It's appearance what, what it not really is. It's a monster. It's like I, I read like this green boa constrictor. I forgot which, South America, this green boa constrictor. I got saw a, a picture of what happening. It's, it's, I probably shouldn't. Have been. This, this parrot didn't realize that it was not a tree. Okay, that's the way sin works. It paints virtues. It paints sin with virtues colors. Now, I, I give you an example. We can call our pride. We all have the problem of pride. You know, there's nobody in here exempt. You got a pride card. I guarantee you, we do. And we can call it self-assurance. We can disguise our lying, telling half-truths, little white lies, as necessary to help somebody. Well, they do it on TV all the time. We can color our covetousness with wise shopping. Look at all the money I'm saving. Um, well, think about that for a minute. If I'm spending the money, how am I saving the money? Oh, I get it. I'm spending the money, but I could have spent more. So I'm not spending as much. So I'm spending less. So I'm saving money. Wow. What a concept. Um, we call, we call sleeping with one's girlfriend or boyfriend cohabiting before marriage. We call that we're in love. You can't deny love. And parents then come along and say, it's okay. They love one another. And then they want you to marry them. And you say, not in this present arrangement of things. And the parents say, but it's so economical. They're under one roof. It saves money. Okay. See how it works? And we could go on. Fourthly. Wow. Fourthly. The Lord of the church calls his church to repentance if it is to avoid his judgment. Verse 16. See, the purity of the entire church can be compromised by a tolerated few. That's why I was happy. Not everyone in this church was buying into Baalism and into the Nicolaitans. However, <clears throat> there were those in the church who had bought into it, and the church was not ramping up and dealing with it. Mine's this is the Corinthian problem. Remember that? The first Corinthians five, the incestuous relationship going on in the church that hey, we're open minded here. We are free spirits. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Overlooking the other way when sin is permitted, nothing is said. And so this is the church at Pergamos. <clears throat> the failure to exercise church discipline is going to bring, will bring Christ against the church. I'm coming, he says. I'm coming. Reminds me when I was a kid. Well, when my mother and father said that. How are you now? I'm coming after you. I was in deep trouble. Especially when the middle name was used. And Jesus says, I am coming. So the church at Pergamum must demonstrate its loyalty to Christ's authority as head of the church by repenting of its permissive attitude toward those caught in moral and doctrinal error. Finally. That the Lord of the church will reward overcomers. You gotta love this one, verse 17. The faithful are promised special privileges in this life. They're perks. There, you know, there are perks for being obedient to Christ. I mean, I know we say, well, the kingdom comes and there are going to be rewards and it's going to be better and it's going to be good. And those who have been faithful and obedient, they're going to have, they're going to have special opportunities. True. But you know, also, there are, righteousness has its rewards. It really does. I think this, these are two aspects of this that I've mentioned are bound up here. The hidden manna. I think the hidden manna here is its biblical code. It's code for enjoyment of fellowship with Christ. Now, and certainly in some elevated, expansive sense in the kingdom. But let me explain. <clears throat> you know what manna did in the Old Testament? 
It's the little wafer showed up every morning. You go out and pick it up and you eat it and that's all you need. Well, all your nutrition, better than a granola bar, better than, better than granola itself. It's just great, better than oatmeal. And it did 40 years, 40 years. Can you imagine? Well, so God provides. But you remember also how Jesus used the, 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 the thought, the language, the connection. And man, he said, I'm the bread has come down out of heaven. I'm your manna. In other words, satisfaction. I'll take care of your needs, your longings, your heart's desire. Could you come to me for that, please? Understand. So I think what he's saying is that, you remember that statement where he made to the disciples and they, uh, yeah, it was in John 4. And the disciples went in town to get some subways and Jesus is out there talking to the woman. And he comes back and they went, what's going on? He said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. What's this? What he was saying is that nobody could see what is true inside. That's why it's hidden. And there is deep pleasure and satisfaction in doing the will of the Father. That's what Jesus was saying. Doing the will of the Father. That's better than food. That's what sustains me. That, that's what makes me what thrive, flourish. So I think that's what he's saying. And then the white stone, I'll take the white stone and the new name together. These are a little difficult, but I think this, this gets, we have to understand something outside in the historical context to get this. There was in this white stone, when there was this system uh, that existed in the first century, we don't have anything quite like it at that time, where a rich person, a very wealthy person, let's just take Caesar, it's kind of the top of the pyramid in wealth, he could have clients, clients, he could have a very wealthy person, could have many, 30, 40 of them, and they would show up at his door every morning. And these would be people who would just do anything and everything. Hey, clean your house, run your errands, wash your clothes, um, you know, bake your bread, uh, do your shopping, and on and on and on and on. And they would be given a Teresa. And this was a little stone or a wooden tablet. And it functioned like a credit card. Credit cards aren't anything new. It functioned like a credit card. And so then they could take that for the services they rented. And then they could go and use that in shops and places. They could buy their own food, groceries, and so forth. And they would get the credit because of the work they were doing, that arrangement. Now, with this in mind, with this stone that came, when, namely that's communicating the fact that there is the promise, I'm going to take care of your needs. When you think of a persecuted church that's probably facing a lot of pressure economically and people have businesses whose businesses get hammered, like, may I say, Chick-fil-A, who can be getting hammered. You think of the problems. Chick-fil-A prosper in New York. Why? This is just sidebar here. This is, this is like we're on another planet. That here is a place where... They actually believe, the owner has gone on CEO record, that he believes in traditional marriage. And they kill chickens in order to provide the chickens. And so what do you get? Protesters. The chickens' rights people. I'm not exaggerating. The chickens' rights people show up and protest. And, of course, all the love, the so-called Love people, same-sex marriage, to boycott. But I have seen pictures of the long lines. Is this right, Matt, if you follow that? The long lines there in New York City. Apparently, New Yorkers' appetites are overcoming some things. And uh, good old southern fried chicken. How'd I get on that? Um, oh, the, this ample supply of whatever you need. And if you get, if you get ostracized, if you get hammered, because as the Lord's saying, I'm going to take care of you. Now and in the kingdom to come. Day by day, trust me, trust me, trust me. And But this new name on the stone, new name on the stone, I think it, it takes, it, there, there are a couple of things involved here. Uh, we're all familiar with the concept of a pet name. Uh, maybe not. In married couples, they've married long enough, they've got their own little names. You may 
you may, in a moment, if you're there at the right time, the right place, you'll hear the husband call his wife and say, he doesn't call her that at church. Or it's, it's a little, and it, it's intimacy. My, my brother's got a name they picked up in Turkey uh, with his wife when they were in the Peace Corps. And it is, nobody else uses that one. And it works for them. And we have several, don't we, Jack? <laughs> and uh, we've, we've got, so it works this way, these pet names. And so um, I got that one from her father. That and it, this intimacy relationship, a new name, and it goes with this stone that to which um, I have to tell you about the gladiators. The gladiators, you know, there's been a the movie The Gladiator is really kind of distorted. Something all most gladiators didn't die doing what they did. They were kind of the ancient equivalent of professional football players. And, uh, I mean, it was too expensive to just throw away, you know, be throwing away dead gladiators all the time. I mean, training and all you So most of them survived and lived. And those who were champions, who, who did well, and a lot of victories, they go into retirement and they would be given a stone, a little white stone. And this was, and on this uh, one side was his name the gladiator, and then on the other side was the word spectatus, or it was actually the initials SP, spectatus, spectator. So that was all expenses paid to all public events, any sporting event, any all those kinds of things for the rest of your life. So what he's saying here with that uh, language, or that, that the cultural experiences, is that the Lord has ample gifts for you and provisions for you. Your name, I maybe it's mass stretch it a little bit. He's got a maybe a pet name for you. I know if he's named all the stars, surely he can handle the names for us. And a name and that's going to speak of special rewards and relationship and service and all of this. So it's a truth that lifts all boats here in encouragement. Now, these overcomers, these are not people, I'll say this in closing. These are believers in the context who do what? They overcome the compromise. They overcome the false teaching. They don't buy into it. They do. Say those who repent. They then go into the largesse of, of, of reward. It's, it's, it's what God, these are the overcomers. I have friends who say all believers are overcomers. You know, that's true to some extent. Yes, we have overcome and we are overcoming, aren't we? I hope we are overcoming sin, overcoming compromise. And all Christians don't get a participation trophy. <laughs> you know what that is? You participated, oh, you get a trophy. That's the way some handle rewards. Everybody gets one. Really? <laughs> no, I don't think so. And I think what he's ending on this note is, is an encouragement. And who has ears to hear, let him hear. Have you heard? Let's be encouraged and go and serve the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Oh, so much here. Lord, I pray that you will just let the truth sink down into our thought processes. And Lord, where the distractions that the speaker may have I may have said things that take us away. Lord, just bring us down to those uh, those succulent truths in your word. Nourish us, and Lord, we'll be faithful to you no matter what's out there waiting on us. And we will be loyal to you in Christ's name. And this church, Lord, oh, protect this church in Christ's name. Amen.